0: This is The Hash Podcast. Stay informed with the latest on Bitcoin, ETH, the metaverse, Web3, and more with stories that matter to the crypto world, all on The Hash for your ears. You're listening to The Coindesk Podcast Network.
1: Hello, everyone. Happy Friday. You are watching The Hash on Coindesk TV, and we're so happy to have you here with us. I'm Jensen Assey. We've got Will Foxley and Adam B. Levine on the show today. Adam, oh, look at that. Let's throw some hearts up for Friday. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: Oh, Adam, I can't do get that. get your heart up there. I don't participate. I don't participate. Adam, I don't, I don't participate. Do I don't participate. I'm this only here for the, the news. Worst. Only for the this
1: news. This is the worst Friday beginning <laughs> that we could have expected, but hopefully we can turn it around. Adam, what do you got?
2: So this time we're kicking things off with Ethereum. In the hours following the long-awaited merge, over 40% of the network's transactions were added by just two entities, Coinbase and Lido. It's worth noting that this is, in a lot of ways, analogous to mining pools seen in proof-of-work blockchains like Bitcoin and, until recently, Ethereum. But there are a couple of important differences that I think are worth kind of getting into. Mining pools are basically services where miners join together to have many smaller mining operations become one larger one, increasing the chances of finding a new block and earning the reward, which is then split between the participants based on how much their hardware contributed to the power of the group. A smart contract like Lido or a company like Coinbase does essentially the same thing. But instead of the power of a miner's hardware, it's the user's number of tokens that matters. And here's where that's different. A mining pool does not hold a miner's hardware. The miner simply points their power at the pool, and they can, without any involvement from the pool, change where that power goes or simply turn it off at a moment's notice, and there's really nothing the pool can do about it. With proof-of-stake, though, the tokens that represent a user's participation must be held by the smart contract or company, which then adds it together into one big pile of tokens. A simple way to think about this is that mining pools are essentially non-custodial, while their proof-of-stake equivalent needs to hold your tokens to work. And that's a distinction without a difference when times are good. But should a company like Coinbase fail, have their security compromised, be the subject of sanctions or any number of other problems, not to mention the risk of smart contracts simply just having a flaw in them that hasn't yet been discovered, users staking with that service could find their coins trapped until and assuming the problem is resolved. Personally, I have no skin in the game here. I prefer a diversity of approaches, but I think it's a fascinating and poorly understood risk and an important distinction. Between Ethereum's old proof of work approach versus this new proof of stake one. Well, as someone who's in the trenches from the world of mining, which now seems like it's a little obsolete when we're talking about Ethereum, how do you see this kind of moment?
3: now. <laughs> Adam, Adam.
1: Sorry, sorry. Punches, I got... Right off the top.
3: Uh, <laughs> wow. Sheesh. A little sharp this morning, Adam. <laughs> no, I do work for a mining company. So, you know, we got our opinions on ETH and ETH 2.0 and staking and all that stuff. But I'm actually an ETH fanboy. It's well known, I think, on this show. So I can dig into it. I do want to throw like a little cold water on this headline. I think that it's accurate and I think it's fair. But I do think there's a little nuance that we should definitely discuss when it comes to centralization on Ethereum. So, yes, Lido and Coinbase were responsible for a lot of the blocks right out of the gate. when Ethereum swapped from proof of work to proof of stake. But there's a few things in there that make this less of a concern, in my opinion. First is that Lido itself has a large spectrum of users, and it's part of a DAO. And they have less control than Coinbase would over deciding how these transactions work, right? So there's a very large difference between a corporate firm based in San Francisco operating under U.S. law and a DAO like Lido, which has its own infrastructure internally and its own ways of managing the stake. Uh, so that's that's the first thing. Second thing is there's slashing penalties on top of this, right? So if there's some sort of conclusion or collusion, excuse me, there's ways to mitigate it, right? So in proof of work and mining, if a pool starts acting up, starts censoring transactions or whatever, you can just move your machine, point it somewhere else, and the pool will die. People stop using it. We're seeing that actively with Poolin right now, which is a Bitcoin mining company that might be insolvent. It is at the very least having liquidity issues. We're still trying to figure out what's going on there. But what we have seen is a lot of Bitcoin miners have pointed their machines away from pool and their hash rate has fallen by over 50%. And that is basically like a very real world effect for you not operating your company well. Same thing could happen with Coinbase or with Lido, right? Where if someone doesn't like how they work, well, they get slashed by the network. The last thing about that though, is we do not have the ability to withdraw funds from the network yet. So yes, you could stake somewhere else possibly like a change your staking process to a different client or perhaps a different service. But it can get a little tricky right now because we don't have the ability to withdraw ETH and we won't have that ability for like six to 12 months until there's another network change. So yes, I do think that this headline is very accurate. I do think though you need to dig in a little bit more to say like, oh, should we be concerned right now? I would say not something to be concerned about, but something to be aware of and start working towards fixing. And I think most of the developers are aware of this and are trying to build a different future where there's a little bit more fairness within client selection. Jen, I'll throw it to you.
1: Well, I actually have two questions for you, Will. From a regulatory standpoint, when I read this story, I think, okay, should a regulator have a problem with Ethereum or with Ether? They can go after one of these centralized players pretty easily. And we've seen that happen with Tornado Cash. So from a regulatory standpoint, is this a concern we should have? And because of that, are we going to see more decentralized validators pop up You know, during the next little while?
3: We certainly would like to see that, right? To the second question, we'd always want some sort of decentralized spectrum for these validators, but they're very hard to build, right? It's very difficult to build these things. And the incentives are not often built into it, which gets into your first question, right? Are regulators going to like this? What they're often not going to like is one, transaction selection. So the fact that you can interact with a Address, say a Tornado Cash address, they're not going to want that. So they'll probably put some push onto Coinbase or some sort of US entity that's doing that. We don't know that for a fact, but it's fair with the, it could be in the realm of possibilities, right? The second part is uh, the stake token itself has been financialized with a token. So ETH has been put onto the ETH 2.0 chain, sitting there, you get some rewards while well, people wanted a little bit more than that. So they booted up these tokens. CB ETH is the one that Coinbase is using. Lido has a Lido token, and there's a few others out there. Basically, a token that represents your staked ETH, and it trades against that staked ETH, typically at a discount because there's some disadvantages to having it. That token is very much like a security in the sense that it has investments in it. It gets money. I, I'll throw it to you, Adam, in a second. It gets money from a token, or it gets money from the project. And you know you can use it as some sort of investment contract. I would see like regulators look at this and be like, eh, "Why not regulate it?" Uh, and it's oftentimes coming from a project like Coinbase, right? Like they're the ones issuing it; they didn't have to issue it. So I think that is where we're going to see some regulatory pressure. I'm not endorsing it, but I do think that's what's going to happen. Adam, to you, uh, I think that you're know, talking about these type systems. What you're talking about really
2: looks a lot like a bond. It looks like a you know a debt instrument. When the essentially the instrument matures. You're able to then kind of pull that out, and the cost that you pay is you don't have access to your money. And the advantage that you get is that it winds up more money had you done nothing with it; it remained access to it. So it's really a time question more than anything else.
3: There's some nuance around like what stake teeth is supposed to look like. Is it security? Is it a bond? Is it something completely different? We will find out, and I think that was a great question to ask. <music>
0: Joindesk has a new event. It's called Ideas, the Investing in Digital Assets and Enterprises Summit. It facilitates capital flow and market growth by connecting the digital economy with traditional finance. Join us for a 360 investment experience where you can source, invest, and secure the next big deal in digital assets all in one place. Use code HASH20 for 20% off a general pass. Register today at coinest.com forward slash ideas.
3: Let's go on to El Salvador and talk about the bond. This is a pretty interesting conversation because of where El Salvador sat within the conversation of uh, Bitcoin over the last two years. When we saw Nayib Bukele, who is the president of El Salvador, get into the Bitcoin space, that Bitcoin Miami uh, announcement. That was huge news. And that really set off the Bitcoin bull run in a lot of ways, like this nation state adoption. And I saw it turn a lot of heads, including people who were very against Bitcoin, uh, people who were you know more ETH heads, I, I should say. They're kind of turned off from Bitcoin. And this turned a lot of people who are also liking to TradFi into Bitcoin as well. They started taking it seriously. But now we have the opposite story, right? Where Bitcoin is down like 60% from all time highs, 70% from all time highs. And El Salvador is facing some credit rating issues. Fitch, which is a credit rating industry or uh, issuer, has downgraded El Salvador's credit rating once again from CCC to CC. And this follows a further credit rating change in February from B- to CCC. So credit ratings are really important for, for, for a country like El Salvador, which is trying to use a lot of funds from the IMF or other larger bank bodies uh, use those funds to help fund infrastructure within the country, build up the country, use it for humanitarian reasons. And we often see that these packages are used uh, to sort of steer policy. And Nayib Kele has been actually very vocal against anyone trying to steer his country's future. And that's why he's latched onto Bitcoin. So we have a very dynamic conversation here where Nayib Kele is the fan of Bitcoin and not a fan of what he has basically labeled as imperialist banking policies. But on the flip side, the country also needs this, right? They need some sort of funding uh, to fund infrastructure within the country, humanitarian reasons, uh, etc. I'll throw it over to you, though, Jen, and get your take on it.
1: It's been so interesting watching what's been going on in El Salvador over the past year. And we've really seen President Nayib Bukele come up against the IMF, for example. And so it'll be interesting to see how they come out of this. There was an article published yesterday by David Morris. I wish he was here today. Called "The Good, DMZ. the Bad, and the Ugly," looking looking at El Salvador over the past year. And in his article, he found that you know while Bitcoin hasn't been able to shield El Salvador from, uh, he said, entanglements with the dollar. um, And while the initiative lost trust in the beginning because a lot of the technical blunders, but things are getting better. And you know, remittance usage and tourism numbers are up. There was an interesting piece of information in his article. He said, if Salvador adoption of Bitcoin remittances accelerates at another 2% per year, the $100 million spent on the Bitcoin network infrastructure could pay for itself in less than a decade. And so we've had this push and pull with the, with the El Salvador story over the last year. Like there are certain things that are really great about it for the country, and there are certain things that are really bad in the short term. And so I, I wonder what's going to happen next there. And I especially wonder what's going to happen next because they have an election coming up in 2024. And should someone who is not Nayib Bukele, who is the president of El Salvador, come into power, what will happen to the economy? I don't know.
3: What will happen to their Bitcoin? Are they going to liquidate the Bitcoin? What yeah, will happen? What
1: if, I really hope what not What if the too. new president
3: came in and they just sold all the Bitcoin immediately? That would be sort of a <laughs> that bummer. Would uh would be a big bummer. No, you're right. We're, we have like a new presidential election coming up. I mean, still like 18 months away, but it, this does sort of set up some questions, right? Like what is the policy Salvador is going to follow going forward? And can Bukele uh, increase his popularity over this time to maintain his position within the country? Like for the most part, we've seen pretty positive news, right? But we also live within the Bitcoin space where like everything about Bukele has basically been very positive. But there's some real negatives as well to talk about. A lot of people see him as an authoritarian a quasi dictator, maybe even just to throw that word out there. That's been tossed around within some mainstream media headlines due to his uh, involvement within national security and dealing with gangs within the country. And just because he has Bitcoin on the balance sheet doesn't necessarily mm-hmm. mean that he is the right leader for this country. And then you also get into some questions about like these loans that are outstanding and the possible restructuring and debt restructuring for them. These are really complicated things. Like There's a lot of people that El Salvador owes money to and just because you're tweeting about Bitcoin doesn't mean that you have the answers to all these. I mean, I certainly hope they have answers to these problems in the near term, because they seem very significant. but we don't know if Bitcoin's going to fit within that. To me, the last question I actually want to throw over to you, Jen, is like, what does this do to the Bitcoin space if, one, he loses re-election and, or two have to sell their Bitcoin because they can't get funding otherwise?
1: I don't know if it it does much to the bitcoin space here. I think the momentum still carries on. I think if they have to sell their bitcoin, that's a whole different story. He seems to be uh very at, at times emotionally driven. You know, I remember when there was pushback against the bitcoin law, he kind of took to Twitter and was like, "Fine, if you don't want to participate in bitcoin, that's fine. Do whatever you want." And actually what you interpret from the law is actually different, but you re- we remember the text of that law wasn't changed. And so I think I think it's worse for the country than it is for the Bitcoin space. I think the Bitcoin space is going to continue to truck along, but El Salvador might find themselves in a really dire situation. I think this is a big bet that the president has made on on Bitcoin. And now we're seeing with the credit rating that in the short term, they're gonna come up against some battles that I don't know how prepared they are to fight. I'll give you the last word before we move on to the next one.
3: Yeah, I hope uh, Bukele doesn't see this on Twitter and ratio both of us, because that'd be devastating for both our egos. But I I do think we have a similar take, right? Like, this could be a tough situation for them. And for the Bitcoin community, I think this could also be pretty tough, because what happens if basically the leader of your movement suffers such a large loss like this? Like Michael Saylor has obviously been in the headlines a lot as well right now, right? And it's not been for very positive things. I mean, they did buy a lot more Bitcoin the other day, which actually happened on the day of the merge, which I thought was a little comical or maybe like some good timing there. But they've made a lot of losses on a, those huge Bitcoin purchases. And I think they bought into that super cycle thesis. It didn't pan out. And now you're sitting on a bunch of losses and having bought so much. I think they're taking a bunch of impairments on top of it. So yes, it's tough. Uh, and I, I think that there's going to be some like, soul seeking a little bit or soul searching during the bear market but we'll leave it there let's go talk about another project which looks like a little bit more of a dumpster fire than what's going on in el salvador
1: we all have a little bit of soul searching to do in the bear market i think so we're all in this together all right there is an nft of ethereum's final proof of work block so the high bid on the nft is only one third of what the creators paid to mint it Vanity Blocks paid around 30 Ether to miner F2 pool to mint the NFT of the final block. And now the best offer was sitting at 10 Ether before the show. There it is there as the image on on the article. Um, Well, I guess, you know, I think that if the merge were to have happened a year ago, this would be a really different story. I, I think there's still something here when it comes to minting nfts around historical moments especially in this industry i i think there is the potential that this could go up in value but what do you what do you make of this one third of what the creators paid to mint it that's got to hurt
3: yeah it's pretty tough that is pretty tough stuff there uh, we might get adam back i'm hearing in a second so that's pretty good so look at this Ooh, here we go look at look that at at me down. welcome back <laughs> oh oh <laughs> Yeah, let's pick up the story though. This is a pretty interesting one from a few different dynamics. So let's take it from a technical angle first. The fact that uh, this project was able to land this block is significant, right? It's very hard to win a block on a proof of work network because it's very random. Did this is basically just paying a ton of money to fit inside that block, and they beat out a lot of different transactions. It's actually a lot of people trying to land transactions on that last block just for like the significance of it, right? Like almost a collectible in that way. And we've seen that with. Bitcoin in the past as well, the last happening, May 2020, there was a lot of people trying to get into that block, trying to win it on the mining pool front, put in like a little message in the opera term, which is where you can add like a sentence or two talking about like a historical moment or whatever. And so we saw that happen in May 2020. In this instance, Ethereum has a little bit more functionality. So someone was able to mint an NFT. They pushed all the other transactions outside the block by paying a ton to win that block space. And then they issued this project and this token and they put it up on the market. They're not going to make their money as of right now. But I do see like in the future, this being something a little bit more interesting to people as some sort of collectible. And so I think that for right now, yeah, you're not probably going to make your money, but maybe in two, three years, if Ethereum can- continues to hit its roadmap and targets, this could be like a pretty notable collectible that someone in the Ethereum ecosystem will want. Adam, throw it over to you. Let's get your take.
2: Yeah, I think you're right on with that. I think that the, the collectability of this in the future, like that's the bet that they're making effectively. And we will see whether or not that's a bet that pays off. You know, a lot of uh, like kind of what's going on in the NFT space in particular and crypto in generally really is speculating on what's going to matter in the future. And that's really in play here. So uh, in the interest of having this go well, uh, I have good thoughts for them, but I will turn it over to Jen. How are you?
1: Yeah, well, I actually have have a question for both of you. I had an argument with someone the other day about this. Do you think that we are going to see those grand prices attached to NFTs like we saw a year ago? You know, the $69 million people. I think Jack Dorsey's first tweet went for something like $2 million. Are those days behind us? And are we looking at NFTs more for their utility now? What do you guys think?
3: Mm, I'll take a first, first crack old. at it. I think that there's going to be more of this, certainly. And I think like you framed this correctly at the beginning, right? If the merge had occurred earlier, the price of this probably would have been significantly higher. But the price to mint this NFT would have actually also been significantly higher. Like It's not super expensive to land something on chain right now compared to a year ago, or certainly even compared to six months ago. So if this had happened, yeah, a year ago, this NFT would probably be worth more. What it cost more to create. In the future, though, it depends on like what your bet is on the NFT marketplace. And I think something like this with some sort of value tied to the network, tied to like a moment, the merge was a huge deal for a lot of people in crypto. Then, yeah, I think that's going to do well. But some of the other projects that were meant to right afterwards, like I don't know. I think there's, there's still like a stigma around NFTs to be cash grabs. Add them to you.
2: So there is a stigma around NFTs, I think, right now, certainly. And again, what we've seen is that NFTs hold up better in some ways and worse in some ways because they just don't have a lot of liquidity, which can mean that they hold up well until they don't, and then they don't hold up well at all. The reality when it comes to the longer term picture is not even a question about NFTs, in my opinion. It's a question about the world outside of NFTs and more importantly, the world of monetary policy. We live in an age that is defined by mania. And that mania is something that's very, very desired because it makes us all feel richer in some ways, assuming that you're actually part of the mania and have some assets. So that's a mechanic that has little to do with cryptocurrency and which is, in my opinion, what drove the first bubble bubble—you um, know, in NFTs, the first very, very high valuations, was that mania. And I do not expect that we are past that. I expect we have many years of that in our future. It's good to hear. That's More a- money to be made. Yeah,
1: I mean... I wasn't expecting Adam to be so positive so on that. Bullish.
2: I don't take it that as a positive. Means. That's a negative to me.
3: <laughs> but it's just a
2: reality, Maybe you know.
1: Money. No. Yeah,
3: I'm for it. I'm for
2: We'd, it. Uh,
1: I think you know we spoke about the Museum of Modern Art earlier. I think we're going to see some of these NFTs that mark these historic moments in this industry in some kind of museum in the future, and I hope we do. To your point, Will, I hope that you know, these these moments don't get gobbled up by private investors, private collectors, and our children can learn about this crazy, crazy time that, that we've lived through.
3: I hope our children learn about the merge as well.
1: Yeah, I can't imagine. I can't imagine what that history lesson will look like. Let's leave it there for our Friday show. You know, I know it seems like we just show up to this show every day and just say what's on the top of our heads, but a lot goes on behind do. the scenes to make this happen we talk about control all the time and teresa santos is one of those people who we talk to on a daily basis and makes this show happen and today's her last day so a very sad farewell to teresa teresa we love you and i think i think we have a little commemorative video mm-hmm. So regal. I love that curtsy. <laughs> mm-hmm,
3: mm-hmm. We will miss you forever.
1: We'll we miss you, you Teresa. IFT. We really should. We should commemorate <laughs> this moment in history so that our kids can know how Teresa contributed to these new stories we bring to you every day. Thank you so much for watching the Hash, everyone. I'm Jensen I've but Adam B. Levine and Will Foxley here today. It's been a great week chatting with you all. Have a great weekend, and we'll see you on Monday.